welcome everybody to the GES Center's weekly colloquium seminar. And um, before we get started today, I just wanted to see if there were any announcements that people wanted to share with the GES Center community. Uh, okay, Eli. Hi, uh, so we have a little update from the uh, colloquium panel organized by the two cohorts. So our speakers are finalized. So in addition to our own Jennifer Kuzma, we're gonna have Bob Cook Deegan, formerly of Duke, now of Arizona State, uh, who's uh, been a, an expert on uh, biotech sort of history and policy. Um, and we're also gonna have Dave Levitan, a science journalist who's written a lot about the Office of Science, Technology and Policy, now headed by the bioengineer, Eric Lander. Uh, so the most important thing is if you'd like to suggest any questions for this panel in advance, we have a form where you can do that, which I just put in the chat. Uh, so please um, go ahead to that link. You can get a little more information about the topic and the panelists there and submit as many questions as you'd like. Uh, if you can do that as soon as possible, but definitely by Thursday, that would be great so that we can get these questions to the panelists uh, with enough time for them to think it over. So uh, thank you again. We're really looking forward to next week. Great, thank you. Anyone else with an announcement? Okay, I think we're good to go. I'm actually gonna hand the mic over to Dr. Kara Greiger and I will let her introduce Chris Cummings this week. Thank you so much, Don. Um, hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Um, we hope you are well. So today we're so excited to have um, Dr. Chris Cummings here to present on how we communicate about gene-edited foods and how these methods of communication really influence aspect of trust, acceptance, and regulation. So for those of you who um, haven't met Chris yet, um, either in person or virtually, Chris is actually a senior research scholar in our GES Center, and he has a rich history of working in diverse fields of risk, risk communication, risk governance aspects, um, and beyond within fields of emerging technologies in food and agriculture. He um, is a diehard uh, Wolfpack member since he has a, both a PhD and a master's in communication from NC State. Um, after graduating from NC State, he actually moved overseas where he served as an assistant professor of strategic communication at Nanyang Technological University of Singapore, where he also serves as the director of the International Strategic Communication Management Program there. Um, last year, he and his family actually moved back to the area to be closer to home. And so since he's returned here, he's been working with several uh, GES colleagues, including Jennifer Kuzman and myself. Um, and in addition to his uh, numerous uh, roles, he also is a senior research fellow at Iowa State University working in their gene edited uh, foods project there. So today, Chris is actually going to present some preliminary results from two studies that are currently under review, and these studies focus on how aspects of communication can impact um, aspects of trust acceptance and regulation of GE foods. In the first study, he'll present a typology of trust-building priorities from both proponents and critics of GE foods while the second study presents a content analysis that reviews media coverage in the US and in Europe on gene, edited, um, gene editing and agriculture. So he's gonna highlight some broad findings in both of those studies today. So um, without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Chris now. All right, thank you so much, Kara, and thank you all for welcoming me uh, to speak to you all this week. Uh, Don and I were chatting before we started today that this is either my third or fourth talk with, with GES Colloquium. So nice to be back. Um, I think my screen is shared. Are we all good there? Okay. Yes, we could see it. All right. Uh, so this is the this is the picture uh, that, that Wired uh, magazine actually used to introduce gene-edited foods really to our public sensibilities. Uh, this is a picture of, of the first GE product that is being used uh, in the United States. It's a soybean that is... Uh, used for uh, processing to make different kinds of oils that can be used in, in restaurants and food industry that supposedly has lower saturated fats and things like that. Uh, but it's really kind of the first touchstone for any public sentiments of gene-edited food. And I think that it's a, a fascinating uh, visual 
to, to help introduce here. Uh, I do have a bunch of names on this list uh, of all of my wonderful colleagues of those that I've been able to join um, over this past year at Iowa State University. Uh, Carmen Bain, who has a large grant uh, similar to uh, the grant that, that Kara and Jennifer Kuzma run, uh, that's a USDA NIFA grant that I have joined them on, um, where I'm a full-time worker for Iowa State, even though I haven't yet been to Iowa. Uh, so we're gonna hopefully be running a deliberative workshop come fall. And if everyone gets their vaccines, which they should, we'll be able to do it in person, which would be wonderful. Uh, so Dr. Carmen Bain is running uh, that program along with uh, her graduate student, Sonia Lindbergh, and her co-PI, uh, Teresa Selfa at SUNY ESF. Uh, so that's all for study one. Study two that I'll introduce today, which is a content analysis study, uh, is with uh, my colleague, Michael Dahlstrom, uh, two of his graduate students in Casey and Mia, and then Sonia again, uh, also all of Iowa State. Uh, Kara did mention a bit about myself. Uh, I am a health and risk and science communication specialist, former assistant professor, came back here right before COVID uh, and it's been, uh, been an adventure. So I've been lucky enough to work with uh, a large constellation of all stars spread across North Carolina State University, Iowa State University. And then I do uh, consultant work with United States Army Corps of Engineers where I've been on a COVID-19 task force and also working uh, on their biotechnology modernization efforts uh, with the federal government. So kind of have tendrils in a lot of areas right now. Um, and uh, it's, been, it's been an adventure this past year that uh, doesn't seem to uh, end, um, which has been a good thing because we have lots of really interesting and fascinating projects that I'd be happy to have some dialogue about if we have time later. Uh, this I call my, my NASCAR jacket slide, uh, just kind of gives you a bit of the breadth and depth of the kind of folks that I work with. And, and for today's talk, you do see uh, USDA NIFA, uh, IFIC, the International Food Information Council, Kraft, uh, some of these uh, larger players who are looking uh, at trying to broaden our understandings around trust, public acceptance of novel agri-food uh, and, and biotechnology products as they, as they enter the commercial market space. Uh, and so I want to just kind of show this, I, I use this slide often just to give people a sense of the kind of work that we do in this area where most of the work is really applied and project oriented and, and and problem-oriented, trying to find what's gonna be the best solutions uh, as we strategically plan to do things like uh, potentially introduce new technologies into society. So uh, a vast array of folks that I've had the privilege to work with. Uh, my thesis of the day today builds off of some of my previous work, looking at how uh, consumers actually come to understand new products. And so back in 2017, I wrote, Consumer products and messages live within a chaotic array of competition for attention. Comprehension of a product by would-be consumers in a larger public sense uh, is likely influenced by the motivations of the information providers, right? We are what we consume. Uh, and so with that idea, uh, what happens here is that consumers will often have to make sense out of any new product or any new message about a product that's likely to be motivated, right? The information providers carry and inscribe their own motivations upon the messages that they are sharing. Uh, and so those motivations can certainly be distinct based on if they are product proponents, opponents, or otherwise. And so if we extend this idea uh, to today's talk, looking at gene-edited agriculture and food products, we note that these early messages, which is where we kind of are now uh, with this nascent technology, really represents a new symbolic and politicized locus where messages can serve a rather ideological mechanism that's created by stakeholders and competition, be them proponents, opponents, or otherwise. Uh, and so the prioritized communication from these groups are likely to be the mechanism that drives public sentiment, that drives how people will come to understand gene-edited foods. Uh, and that will likely also influence how they'll be evaluated by risk assessors and risk managers and how they will actually be governed. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of my thesis for the day. And it's from that point that I want to introduce uh, two studies. As Kara mentioned, they are under review currently. So I can't give you all the details. Uh, they have been put along with uh, a nice uh, group of others in a collection that has been proposed for a special issue that I'm guest editing for a fairly prominent uh, journal that looks at societal implications of science and technology. And so study one is a qualitative study that uses interviews, uh, interview data that, that was collected uh, on this USDA NIFA program um, to reevaluate some of those priorities uh, that are 
uh, promoted by proponents and critics of gene-edited foods in order to try and cultivate large, broader social license or trust uh, in the technology. And so that's where we start today. And so here, what we're looking at really uh, is that the big social risk, as one of our uh, proponents of, of this technology noted, the big social risk is reliving what we've lived through with GMOs, uh, alienating large parts of the public such that the outcome is either fear or mistrust of the technology. And so we note that, of course, gene-edited foods uh, are steeped in a larger sociocultural history of other food technologies. And so there is this uh, tension between gene editing and GMOs as, as perceived by both proponents and critics of the technology. And they note that there is this public deficit of trust that's likely to be a significant threat to the actual development uh, and potential use of gene edited foods uh, in the commercial market space. And so in order to close this kind of trust gap, uh, they note that proponents really should and oftentimes are considering uh, some of the priorities that the critics groups might hold. And these critics groups we've mostly conceptualized as being either general consumer or advocacy groups. Oftentimes these are our, our NGOs and, and groups like that that, that uh, are well read in the area uh, and definitely have uh, their own motivations to, to engage in discussion around technological advancement. Um, and so our goal really was to describe where and how proponents and critics differ in these priorities relative to gene editing. And so we started to ask the questions of what kinds of attributes of gene editing or attributes of messaging are these key organizational actors focused on? Um, and we felt that by understanding these discordant priorities, we may be able to foster new engagement and new governance initiatives uh, that can hopefully uh, close this trust deficit or at least uh, help these uh, discordant groups to understand one another so that we might be able to bring everybody to the table in a more reasonable way than what we saw in the obstinate era of genetically modified organisms. Um, so that's kind of the goal. And uh, before I got to this uh, project, uh, it had been well underway. So even back when I was still serving as a professor in Singapore, uh, the Iowa State group had already been conducting interviews. Uh, and so they had conducted uh, a total of 49 interviews uh, across these different kinds of organizations with consumer food and safety groups, rural advocacy groups, and then uh, on the development side as well, agribusiness, biotech seed companies, uh, government agencies, food companies and retailers. Uh, and they, they had a, a semi-structured interview protocol and uh, this paper particularly focuses on public perceptions of gene editing and trust issues. And out of this project, um, since I've come into it, what we've done is tried to make sense out of these uh, different concerns that both proponents have and uh, critics have uh, with how they're going to potentially garner greater social license for the technology. And we uh, basically built a typology of these priorities. So we have things that are uniquely proponent kinds of priorities uh, where they have done things like uh, tried to shift away from what was oftentimes overly scientific speaking talk about GMOs to now uh, really avoiding science talk when it comes to, to uh, gene edited foods and instead focusing in other areas like instilling shared values uh, between consumers uh, and farmers uh, and, and the developers as well as, and then also doing things like uh, increasing transparency. On the other side, when we look at the critics, they also have their own uniquely critic issues. And most of these uh, have to do less with how uh, the proponents are communicating and more about regulation and more about alternatives. And so their unique uh, considerations are more uh, prescient in, in regarding things like limiting corporate control, um, considering different kinds of agricultural approaches to problem solving, and then uh, trying to uh, bolster some of the third-party arbitration that goes on to improve regulatory oversight um, of, of this nascent technology. And then, of course, in the middle, we have what, what we've called the contested space. And so these are areas that are really um, where I talk about that ideological mechanism and, and the competition. We see both of these groups uh, bringing up uh, kind of counterfactual 
uh, arguments uh, within these domains where they are trying to frame the benefits and risks in distinct ways, trying to define gene edited agriculture and foods in distinct ways. Uh, they have different labeling priorities uh, and they are in direct contestation with one another in trying to delegitimize uh, the other group. Uh, so we'll, we'll touch briefly upon each of these uh, in the results. And so we'll talk about each one of these in turn and provide kind of an exemplar quote uh, from, from our group. So we'll start with the proponents. Um, there's been an acknowledgement that the deficit model was a kind of a, a huge failure in public engagement strategy around GMOs. Uh, deficit model was the idea that um, the public doesn't understand science, but if they did, they would be in favor of products that use particular sciences. And so the original idea was shovel more science at the folks um, and they will they will come to understand it and see it how uh, developers see it. And we learned quickly that that's, that's just not the case. Um, you can learn quite a bit about uh, a particular technology or scientific application and it doesn't necessarily lead to uh, stronger favor uh, for that particular technology. And so now they're seeking to build trust through other means. And that oftentimes uh, from proponents' mouths uh, means actually avoiding some of that science talk with the public. As a couple of our uh, interviewees, our expert uh, population here that we interviewed uh, noted, people's ingrained individual heuristics about how they view food and the food environment is more impactful than any scientific argument you can make. And so here we note that especially around areas of food where we have cultural representations and values and significant identity meaning that we, uh, that we impart upon our understanding of food, that that's largely going to be uh, more impactful than any kind of discussion around uh, science and technology. Uh, and then uh, another proponent noted that when you say it's just a mutation, that doesn't help anything either. When you're speaking to a population, the majority of whom say, I don't want DNA in my food, putting it in scientific language isn't going to help anything. Um, they also note that instead of science talk, we should instead start uh, with instilling shared values, says our proponents. And so this really, uh, from our proponents' views, is kind of the entree to building trust and encouraging consumers to engage in these discussions uh, regarding gene editing. So trying to uh, get people to come to understand uh, the motives that, that developers are trying to create these technologies for beneficent purposes oftentimes. And so one proponent went as far as to say, our messaging needs to be a lot more concentrated on shared values. We need to start with the point of saying, look, I feed my kids this food. I love my kids. You love your kids. I wouldn't feed this to them if I didn't think it was safe. Whatever those messages are, I think it's important that we begin to establish trust by starting with our shared values. And so uh, noting that uh, from this kind of domain, proponents now are trying to uh, shift conversations away from uh, a push of technology on people and instead trying to pull them in with an understanding that we are uh, in this kind of together. Uh, on that note, uh, proponents also noted that they are actively trying to increase transparency uh, within their within their organizational practices and how they plan to uh, increase trust. And they note that, that transparency matters. Uh, how to actually enact transparency uh, within their practices was something that was certainly divisive uh, across our groups. Um, but just about every proponent noted that increasing transparency was important. And they noted that to build trust, we had to, quote, get out in front of any potential criticism of the technology and respond to consumer demands for more access to information. Uh, one proponent noted, consumers are demanding transparency and transparency is this word that keeps coming up. Transparency is foundational to trust. Consumers wanna understand what your practices are, how you're treating the animals, how you're taking care of the soils, what kinds of chemicals you're putting on the ground and what kinds of seeds you're using. And so uh, they noted that there is this desire uh, that, that they thought is probably newer uh, in this last generation of consumers uh, for more information about foods and, and how they get to your plate. Uh, and so with that, they're looking at trying to improve uh, at least some of this information provision, how they actually provide that information. Um, some, some noted that, uh, you know, this idea is mostly a buzz term uh, that's almost meaningless. Others noted that we could increase transparency through things like labeling, which I'll discuss here in a minute as well. Um, 
And so it was actually rather uh, contested within this group on the mechanism by which we could increase transparency. Now, on the other side, when we look at critics, uh, one of their major uh, discussions and priorities for building trust among consumers was to uh, put, a, put a pressure on trying to limit corporate control. And they noted that there's a fundamental problem that gene editing is developed by and large by large corporations in order to, at the end of the day, make money and to increase profit margins for that particular company. Uh, and critics oftentimes find this to be uh, less serving of the larger citizenry and less beneficent. As one critic noted, the problem is that the technology will be exploited for profit and that the profits are controlled by companies that don't have good motives. Therefore, however it's developed isn't relative to however it gets used. Uh, and this I thought was a, a fascinating uh, issue for us to explore uh, as critics oftentimes uh, voice that many of the developers themselves, the individual people, had very good motives and were doing very good work, but that once it got out of their hands when a product was developed, that it would later be exploited by larger companies in order to uh, try and just you know, corner the market or increase profit margins uh, in ways that was probably antithetical to the original development of the product. Um, they also noted, critics did, uh, that we should consider alternative agricultural approaches and that there's a bit of duplicitousness uh, among proponents and developers, and especially the large companies who are uh, trying to develop gene-edited food products. And they note that uh, this kind of corporate control doesn't allow for consideration of alternative solutions to problems in agri-food systems. And one critic went as far as to say that companies don't sell technology uh, they sell the problem that the technology is going to solve. That's exactly what they've been doing. You have a whole generation of farmers that now believe the only way you can effectively deal with a weed is to buy a package of seed and herbicide that work together. That's the easiest, most advanced, the only scientifically feasible way of doing it, as if there were no other alternatives. And so uh, they're looking here oftentimes at kind of portraying uh, these these companies as as being duplicitous in in that they're not actually trying to beneficently provide benefit, rather they're trying to push a problem that only they can solve, which was an interesting um, discussion that we that we heard of of our of our critics. Um, they also noted that they wanted improved regulatory oversight and that to instill societal trust. Uh, they needed to ensure that gene edited products are safe and fit for purpose. And a lot of our critics had. Uh, commentary about the current regulation as set forth uh, by our, our jurisdictional bodies in the United States, as this was a US-only study, um, where they had, had some questions and concerns um, and noted things like, we need to have oversight and regulation so that we don't have the current situation where companies are self-proclaiming their products as safe. Uh, and they note that history has taught us time and again that we can't trust a company to do its own safety assessments. And they go further to go, we don't hear about the fact that they're poisoning our environment, air, water, eroding, soil, displacing farmers. We need more complex evaluations and the regulatory mechanism should tend to that. That means that there should be a stronger, a strong public sector component. There should be a strong public health component, a strong environmental component. And so uh, these critics are calling, not necessarily even for developers to change their ways in this, in this uh, particular area where they could foster better public trust, but instead noting that the onus really should be on uh, government and regulators to be able to uh, enact better oversight uh, in these ways by, by uh, broadening the actual oversight process. Now in the middle, we had those contested spaces. Um, and so the first contested space that we saw was really in how uh, proponents and critics frame benefits versus risks. And proponents uh, oftentimes noted that public trust would be enhanced by tangible evidence of benefits for end consumers. Uh, and they noted that there was a, that there should be a distinction uh, in this next generation of, of agrobiotechnology with gene edited foods versus GMOs, where there needs to be a very clear benefit that the public recognize uh, that would be in contrast to the, the older era of GMOs, where benefits went primarily to farmers and companies that sold seeds to those farmers. Uh, and if indeed a product that really helps improve sustainability, uh, that we also can tell that story and get out in front of terms of talking about 
It's not just helping the farmer, it's about improving the environment. So really trying to uh, make uh, benefits more salient and understood and tangible uh, and, and you know, manifest for uh, end consumers and, and the environment. Critics, however, are very mistrustful of industry benefit claims. Um, and they emphasize that there are likely to be risks from unintended consequences of gene editing. And so they note that there are the, the unknown unknowns, uh, so to speak, um, that, that have not been studied enough uh, from the critic's perspective. And by editing for a specific desirable trait, scientists may inadvertently cause a species to become more prone to disease or inhibit, uh, inhibitive environmental factors that may be spread to wild vegetation and could wipe it out. And so uh, uh, many critics, uh, you know, oftentimes went down the, the path of trying to uh, prognosticate what could happen uh, should there be some unintended consequence from these kinds of gene editing technologies. Now, beyond just framing benefits and risks uh, around gene edited foods, proponents and critics were uh, noting that they have distinct desires for how gene edited agriculture and foods should be defined at all. And proponents have uh, largely spoken that they seek to distance uh, gene edited foods as distinct from GMOs and have tried to really equate it with traditional plant breeding, noting that gene editing is just a more sophisticated way of doing what we've been doing for centuries. We used to do it, we used to do selective breeding in a much more crude way. This is a much less crude way, but otherwise it has just sped up selective breeding, say proponents. Critics, on the other hand, uh, really are trying to equate uh, gene edited foods as equal to or very similar to uh, GMO. And, and as, as critics here note, gene editing is genetic engineering. The genes are modified, that's what a GMO is, and we need to call it what it is. Uh, and others have said, uh, we have gone in and manually reached into the genome. It's biotechnology and the consumer ought to be able to understand that this is something where we used food te use technology essentially to create this food that you're eating versus selective breeding. Uh, and so even just trying to uh, put parameters around what is and is not GEF is something that is certainly still contested uh, at the current time, um, especially by these two, two distinct and divergent groups. Um, beyond these, they also uh, have different views on how these types of products uh, should be labeled in the consumer marketplace. And so for proponents, there was actually quite a bit of disagreement over some of the transparency uh, and likely trust uh, building factors that could come along with uh, demands for food labels. Um, and so one proponent noted, if products are not labeled, it just invites more criticism that we're not speaking to what is in people's food. And it is important that we completely eliminate that argument that we're hiding something. So some proponents were uh, saying that food labels can be a wonderful way to increase transparency and garner some of that goodwill and trust among the public. Um, but others noted that gene editing is very different from GMO and should not be lumped together. And labeling is the strategy of anti-GMO groups who want to keep the GMO debate going. And so we see kind of two different uh, rationales for food labeling, which I've actually explored in some previous work of mine, uh, one paper uh, with Jennifer Kuzma, um, the, the director there, and then a couple others when I was in Singapore, looking at uh, different types of food labels and, and the rationale for why people would like them. Um, and just about everybody is for food labels, um, one way or another in the, in the consumer side where they would either like them for more information or they would like them as this potential do not buy cautionary label. And so that's what these two proponents are kind of speaking towards as well. Uh, on the critic side, uh, they note that really these labels are fundamental to choice, that they are needed for transparency and that uh, they're needed to bolster that public trust. And that labeling is really important for consumers because otherwise you have very little power as consumers over your food supply. But at least if you can get labeling, you can get some information that you can use to make choices and that it needs to be completely transparent uh, what's going on and that involves clear labeling. Uh, the last of these contested spaces was where these proponents and critics groups are noting that they are in oftentimes a contested battle with one another and that that, that is uh, something that's been ongoing since the GMO era uh, and continues now uh, with genetic engineered foods. And so there has been this push for delegitimizing the opposition uh, as noted by both proponents and critics. 
where proponents note that there's a number of groups that have a big interest around aggregating GEFs and lumping them in and calling them GMO 2.0. And they note that if you're making money and their business model and their livelihood is dependent upon there being a GMO controversy, it's in their best interest to continue to lump things as GMO whether they are or not. And so proponents are, are also pointing the finger back at critics for being duplicitous. Uh, and, and one critic went as far as to say that uh, critics have directly lied about the risks and benefits of previous uh, technologies to the public and that that was something that was uncalled for, noting that uh, saying, don't trot out false health, safety, environmental concerns that are really proxies for discussion of law, regulation, policy. It's misinformation. It's lying to the public. If you've got a legitimate concern about market power, about control, about regulation, then let's have that discussion. But don't go out and scare the public with falsehoods. So let's be honest with the public and the consumers in that, because that's where GMOs went in the ditch. And don't try to scare the public about something that's not the point. Uh, and so proponents are often uh, noting that some of the uh, critical messaging uh, in this last era was not actually focused on, on the topics of the day that actually seemed to be most prescient, like limiting corporate control uh, from the proponents view. Critics, on the other hand, uh, do note that if you really have legitimate ends to help people, then pursue those ends without making a fetish of a particular technology to get there. Uh, noting that we could consider some of these alternative approaches and companies could solve the problems that they say they are setting out to solve uh, without necessarily creating the next technology and focusing instead on uh, problem solving at a, at a larger basis. And they note that compared to the forces that are trying to sell technologies to us, it's like David versus Goliath. We have limited resources. And so we focus a lot on what they call real world biotechnology, the stuff that's actually cutting edge and at the approval or commercialization stage, uh, having real world impacts. And it can take a lot of time. It's hard to fully engage uh, when things are mostly on the horizon. Um, so in sum, when we look across this typology, uh, we can note that these interviews do suggest that proponents may not be addressing the full gamut of this trust gap as they're oftentimes uh, not really engaging with some of the concerns of critics. And my group with Iowa State uh, note that uh, these findings might provide an opportunity for self-reflection and, and increased deliberation and engagement uh, on how this technology will, will go forward and uh, be governed. Uh, and so we think that there may be room for significant revision uh, to current strategies by proponents uh, that may be warranted to better address some of these critic concerns, which are oftentimes uh, a proxy for uh, later era uh, consumer concerns, uh, and that they might be able to better prioritize practices to help address some of these societal considerations um, that may help to overcome that trust gap. Um, so that's the first study. And I do want to uh, say thank you to uh, Carmen Bain and Teresa for including me on this. It's been a, been a very interesting project to work on. Um, the second study is uh, completely different. It is on the same exact topic, uh, but it is a media coverage study. And so this was a content analytics study that I conducted with Michael Dahlstrom and colleagues there at Iowa State as well, where we wanted to know how are uh, current media messages portraying gene-edited foods uh, in publications that are targeted at the public. Um, as I noted at the start of the talk, um, oftentimes the first messages tend to be the ones that uh, are the most prescient for the public. And so we wanted to uh, start to actually describe what are what do these messages look like. So uh, we actually consulted with three or four different research librarians who helped us finally garner uh, pretty much every English language uh, media coverage article since 2015 when CRISPR started. And we ended up with a final sample of 171 media articles uh, that we wanted to compare between uh, media articles in the United States and those in the EU in order to know what are the likely differences here where we do see two different risk cultures on this topic where uh, in the United States, these products are uh, starting to be used and in the EU, uh, they are not. And so we wanted to be able to uh, be kind of the first flag in the ground to note how are media discussing these kinds of issues. 
And so uh, these are some of the tentative results that we have. We asked about the domain and the valence of the article. So uh, when they're talking about GEF, what are they talking about specifically? And you can see our red bars here uh, are the US and the brown bars are the EU. And it's just about equal uh, for consumer foods, uh, agricultural crops and livestock animals. So even across the different regions, we don't see a large distinction here. And the same goes for the valence. Uh, we were looking at, is the article mostly positive, mostly neutral, mostly negative? And we note that there were hardly any negative framed articles uh, across the entire sample, which we thought was very interesting. So uh, most were neutral or quite positive. When we look at what are the dominant frames, what's the main message uh, of these different media uh, articles? My goodness, it looks like I accidentally copied and pasted the same image, but I didn't. That is exactly what we saw between these two regions. They look almost identical uh, in the spread of frames, which we thought was just absolutely fascinating uh, and may actually bespeak more to the issue cycle, as we call it in media studies, uh, as, as we're looking at a, a fairly nascent technology. But most studies, either in the US or the EU, were focusing on some of the potential social progress that could be attained uh, through, through this kind of technology. Uh, and then second to that uh, were issues around governance, which we'll talk further about. But we thought it was quite interesting that the frames were, were almost equal uh, in, their, in their spread across the different frames that we were, that we were coding for. Uh, we also coded to see, are they actually comparing and contrasting uh, GEF with GMO or are they equating GEF to GMO? Uh, and we noted that uh, in the US uh, and the EU, it was roughly the same where um, a small percentage, maybe five to 7% uh, actually were equating GEF to GMOs while upward of uh, 30 to 40% uh, were contrasting them. And then on the right-hand side, you see who was the main source for the article. If there was an interview, if there was a quote, uh, who was that person that was given this media space? Uh, and by and large, this was uh, people with a vested interest in uh, development, whether they were academic scientists or uh, academics or developers themselves, food and agriculture industries. Um, you'll note the, um, the asterisks here denote uh, that we did run tests, uh, just basic chi-square tests to note any differences uh, between the regions. And so we did see a statistical difference uh, with more representation from uh, environmental food and agricultural nonprofits in the United States than the EU. And also more uh, kind of parroting of stories where we saw media uh, actually quoting other media uh, in the United States. We looked at what kinds of benefits uh, were associated with GEF. So we split these between some of the physical benefits and some of the more societal benefits that we called uh, LC, right? Uh, ethical, legal, and societal implications. Uh, and we note a statistical difference here uh, with more articles focused on improved food quality and human health uh, and the economic benefits in the US than the EU. Um, on the risks side was probably the most interesting uh, part of this where, again, we were looking at physical ELSI uh, and governance risks, um, but we saw that the biggest uh, risk as presented, as presented across U.S. media was this lack of consumer acceptance as a risk. Uh, and so this really demonstrates that in the United States, this discussion around uh, trying to cultivate public trust, uh, why it's so prescient, and we see that that's uh, echoed in media coverage. And then uh, most interestingly, I think of our entire study here uh, is, is the risks of uh, having not enough regulation or too much regulation. And so we see a statistical difference here in the United States uh, having a much greater emphasis on not enough regulation, which is interesting because the United States currently uh, is allowing these products uh, to actually be used while the EU is not. Uh, and then, uh, so that might bespeak to uh, a greater uh, desire to uh, potentially limit some of the physical risks here. And then on the other side, too much regulation in the EU, which might highlight uh, that there may be a, a desire to try and maximize at least some of the, uh, the benefits um, and, and that there might be limiting risks of not being able to provide um, some of the social benefits. Um, so in, in broad strokes, gene-edited foods have thus far avoided many of the negative views 
that we saw in the previous and obstinate GMO era. Um, but this also comes with a caveat that the sources in these stories are stakeholders in gene-edited food development, right? Or they're folks that stand to benefit financially. And so uh, as we continue to track the portrayal of gene-edited foods over the next few years, um, we expect that this early stage in the attention cycle will probably transition more towards themes of conflict and potential social protest that are present but are not yet dominant uh, among these frames. And so I think that uh, what, what we in, anticipate to happen is, is a, a greater diversity of sources moving forward, which will allow for the entrance of greater contestation and conflict across these uh, areas. Um, we also note that the most stark and provocative divergent was really uh, on the risks of over and under regulation. And so in the U.S. sample, they discussed the risk of not enough regulation um, while the opposite was true, uh, and there was a over-focus on too much regulation in the EU. Uh, and so we think that this may uh, potentially set an agenda in the U.S. to influence public opinion and policy uh, to restrict the currently open regulatory environment and, and uh, prioritize calls for increased oversight, which may minimize physical or social risks. Um, and the same may be argued in the EU, uh, where we might anticipate presence of policy discussion relevant to agenda building um, that might be overly regulated uh, and thus uh, the potential physical, social, and financial benefits uh, may go unmaterialized in that sense. Uh, I, I'm going to stop there and say uh, thank you so that way we can hopefully have save some time here for, for discussion. So I'm going to stop sharing now and thank you uh, and look forward to some questions. Great. Thank you so much, Chris. This uh, will leave us about 20 minutes for discussion, so that would be great. I see that people have already started leaving some um, questions and comments in the chat. And just to remind everyone, if you want to ask Chris a question, just put your raise the hand function and uh, we'll gladly call on you. And Chris, I think we can start with uh, the first comment by uh, Jason Delborn. Uh, and then I'm going to also read uh, Eli's comment that's also related to that. So I'll start with those two and then we can take it from there. It says, I see a worrying asymmetry between the analysis of proponents and opponents of the gene edited foods. The points about proponents are all about strategic communication. The points about opponents are about their values, what they want. This asymmetry hides the value of proponents, implicitly taking what they want as unworthy of consideration or beyond critique. My question to Dr. Cummings is whether he sees these points as symmetrical and if not, how the asymmetry is justified. Uh, let me see if I can understand this a bit further. Uh, Jason, would you, are you available to speak? Can you can you reframe for me a little bit and explain what you mean by this asymmetry with values? Sure. Um, looking at not the the middle part of your slide, but the two the analysis of like what the proponents are saying and what the the cr critics are saying. It seems that the what you're describing about what you noticed in the data of proponents' interviews was a set of priorities for how to communicate better. So to, you know, to not talk about the science, to emphasize transparency, I, I forget the third um, category. And when you analyzed what proponents said during the, or sorry, what opponents said during the interviews, it was mostly about their substantive critiques about corporate control um, and exploring other alternatives. So those aren't symmetrical in terms of what you're noticing in those interviews. And, I, and I'm, I'm just concerned about that asymmetry and wondering where that comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this was certainly something that we we had some internal discussions and is more featured heavily in the discussion of that paper, truthfully, um, where we note that, you know, the things that were uniquely uh, for proponents and how they sought to cultivate public trust was really uh, strategic communication based. Um, and we saw that it parrots oftentimes uh, groups like the Center for Food Integrity who are trying to instill, uh, I think what they call pillars of uh, public outreach or something like that, where it is focusing on shared values and, and transparency, um, but oftentimes in less substantive terms uh, and, and, and without any uh, materialized plans for how they would do this. Um, and so it, it feels a bit truthfully buzzwordy uh, more than anything. Um, and then, uh, you know, we do get to the other side with critics where it's we, we don't care as much about what you say, we want to see what you do. Um, and so that's where uh, I do see that, yeah, I believe that there is some asymmetry here, um, where at least on the proponent side from what we've seen from our analysis, 
Um, proponents uh, want to ensure that there is product safety, but they believe that the product safety is already kind of inherently uh, inscribed within a lot of the technological production. Um, and we didn't have many proponents talking about off-target risks in the actual development of products or um, societal risks uh, on that front. And so it was really a, a, a push that was more about communication from proponents um, and really not at all about communication um, from critics except for a demand for food labels. And so that's where, you know, we do see, um, you know, going back to that kind of point that um, when we're talking about this particular manifestation, this particular kind of communication that would be uh, mandated, um, critics really did push that as a mechanism for increased understanding while we saw it was split among proponents and some were for labeling and others were not, uh, which was which was really fascinating. Um, we didn't see much uh, within obviously this analysis from proponents that was more uh, process oriented or product uh, development oriented. There wasn't uh, a large discussion around, you know, we can build pu public trust by uh, ensuring safety by design or by making sure that we enacted responsible innovation or some of these things that wasn't uh, really, really prioritized among, among proponents um, in, in this study. Um, and the data were collected in 2018, 2019. So there may be some shifting uh, going forward from here. We'll see. Thank you. And just to piggyback off of that, uh, Chris, there was a question from Eli Hornstein. Uh, to Jason's point, which of his two options more likely underlies the phenomenon proponents' wants aren't debated because they are seen as unworthy of consideration, in parentheses negative, or beyond reproach, in parentheses positive? Proponents' wants aren't debated. Because they're seen as unworthy of consideration or beyond reproach. So at this point, we're kind of calling into question, um, you know, the ideas around um, instilling shared values and, you know, increasing transparency and avoiding science talk. At least the, 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 the former two of these are really what some of us in communication would call God terms, right? Um, it's really bad to say, no, we want less transparency, right? We don't want shared values. And so when we use these kinds of God terms, um, they're impossible arguments to refute, right? And so I think that might be part of the uh, beyond reproach that Eli might be speaking to. Um, Eli, do you, wanna, do you wanna share more here? I see you there. Yeah, I think I was sort of using Jason's original terminology. Um, so the, and I think you sort of answered my question as well. Why, why, why specifically? Like, what, what's more likely the reason um, to give more examination to op opponents' values and to proponents' strategy? Is it because we don't care about the proponents' values at all, or because we assume they're universally good? And it sounds like, in using the word God, you say you're, we assume they're universally good. Well, when I say God terms, I mean things like uh, you. You can't. You can't really say like no one. We we would be against you know liking one another or wanting more transparency, and so that's more what I'm what I'm speaking to on on that front. Um, but you know, as far as as far as actions go, I did find it fascinating that uh, we do have this communication focus on proponents, and I think that's that's kind of the first and foremost area here is uh, the the proponents aren't really uh, debating that we can increase trust among the public. Um, oftentimes through uh, even the minimization of risk, right? Risk was something that was hardly, uh, hardly brought up by our proponents. And instead it was about making uh, the products actually materialize with benefits for consumers that were tangible uh, and then speaking to consumers in distinct ways. Um, and so that's one, one big split is we do see a focus uh, which is, classic uh, across technological development in general, that developers are focused on the benefits of their technology uh, while critics are focused on the risks. And so we do still see that, that contestation and split here. Great, thank you. I am going to um, read a, comment, a question and comment by Stacy Roberts, and then I'll get to um, Dalton and Amanda who have their, their hands raised. So Stacy Roberts says, well, I realize public trust or social 
The censure is a major issue regarding GMO, ag, and food. Do you know what percentage of the American public is actively concerned about GMOs in our food supply? When I taught at NC State um, and asked my students who were mostly freshmen and sophomores what they thought about GMOs, most of them either didn't care or didn't know what I was talking about. When I taught at UC Davis, there was more knowledge and debate about the issue, but it was still not universal. I realize these are not representative samples, but it seems concern about food falls to people who have the time, education, and our cultural inclination to care. 100% agree. Um, you know, uh, I, I completely agree. This is something that uh, I discuss quite readily when we're talking about just public sentiment towards science in general. Um, and, you know, over, over my 15-year career, I've studied nanoscience and nanotechnology, geoengineering, synthetic biology, and now getting uh, further into GMO and gene edited foods. And this is something that we see, uh, you know, prescient across all of these domains is uh, people oftentimes don't care about science so much, you know, people are busy. Um, and so it does fall to those that do, like you say, uh, have greater time, education, cultural inclination to care. And so what we, people might not care about are the minutia and granular detail uh, about technology or, or applied science. Um, but they do tend to care about risk. Um, and they usually want to understand it in simple terms because people are busy, right? People uh, have to get up, go to work, get their kids to soccer practice, come home, have a meal and get ready to do it all again the next day. And so oftentimes science isn't the kind of thing that people focus on. Um, you know, one of my, my favorite kind of bylines here is there's only two sciences that people care about, animals and space. Beyond that, no one cares about public science, right? If it's not a cute animal or it's not a, you know, questioning the heavens, um, we're not concerned about understanding science. We're concerned about understanding risk. And so these early messages that seek to uh, provide anchor points for people to understand potential risks or maybe obfuscate those risks, uh, I think becomes uh, particularly important. Because um, like you say, you know, there's not a, a large push here um, around GMO to even understand uh, that one. And that's the, the target that a lot of proponents and critics are saying uh, is the one that, that does have a larger touchstone. Um, but we have seen that that has turned into things like uh, voluntary labeling initiatives, like the, the non-GMO GMO initiative labels. Um, and so there's, uh, there's some question and concern around what kind of heuristic function uh, these kinds of uh, communication may have for something like gene-edited foods. Um, if there is indeed a good benefit to be seen by some of these products, either for end users, for environments, uh, it would be great to maximize those benefits and minimize the risk. Um, and that certainly comes with a caveat that they'd have to actually be used. And so uh, this target of public understanding around uh, risks and benefits of these technologies is something that uh, has yet to play out that I think is, uh, is fascinating from academic study uh, and one that may have great societal influence. Okay, I'm gonna call on Dalton. He's had his hand raised for a while. Dalton George. Yes, hi. Um, uh, hi, Dr. Cummings. Uh, great talk. Um, it's always a pleasure to hear you talk here at the GES Colloquium. Um, I'm, I guess my question pertains to uh, whether or not you and the research team encountered any sort of surprising results that extended beyond sort of this like classic pro-anti-space um, and occupied a sort of middle ground or, gener or if there was any results that generated a like noticeably novel perspective and sort of what did those results look like? So like, for example, um, were there any moments um, in the data where stakeholders identified as proponents maybe offered critiques and concerns related uh, to GEF technology that either aligned or generated a new perspective that didn't come from critical voices? And then, you know, vice versa, did critical voices ever point to any sort of benefits um, of this technology or the, or the space in question that aligned or maybe generated a new perspective that uh, didn't come from um, proponent voices? Sure, um, absolutely. Great, great question, Dalton. And, and nice to see you. Thanks for thanks for it. Uh, we did see, you know, some some cross cutting kind of commentary. So we did have the critics who were going, "We are not against biotechnology. We're not against genetic engineering. We're not against gene editing, um, but we do want to make sure it is done in a way that is 
feasible and uh, demonstrate safety prior to commercialization. And so we did have critics voices like that, especially in that improving regulatory oversight uh, kind of strain where, you know, they're going, we're not anti-tech we're, or anti-food technology. Um, we are just wanting to ensure that the process uh, by which it actually uh, can minimize risks and maximize benefits uh, is as good as it can be. And so we did see that, right? So it's not a not a giant lump that all uh, all folks in this you know critic group are are uh, not desiring to see the actual proliferation of these technologies. Um, some were some were directly noting we are fine with you know different levels of of agrobiotechnology. We just want to ensure the process uh, is done in, in, with its due diligence. Um, on the proponent side, uh, we did see some kind of remnants from uh, the deficit model a little bit, uh, where we did have some saying, well, if people just understood it. Um, and so that was persistent, but by and large across most, uh, there was really this, this uh, deference to understand that we shouldn't be talking about the science at least first, um, that we'll have to eventually talk about the science, but that Talking about the science first would be a kind of shutdown moment for, for trying to discuss with the public, um, which I thought was interesting because the focus was on science and not on risk. Um, you know, if I were to approach this myself, I'd say we need to talk about risk first because, it, it, at least, you know, in my own, uh, you know, anecdotal perceptions or, or even expert perceptions looking across the gamut of public sensibilities of acceptance, uh, risk seems to drive acceptance. Um, so it is interesting that in our study, uh, proponents focused on risks so little. Uh, and so it was interesting that they then focused instead, uh, as Jason did point out, more on the strategic communication focus uh, rather than on discussions around what they know about the safety of these products. Um, and so I thought that that was that was interesting. They focused on benefits, but but not risks. Great, thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to call on Amanda. We have about three more minutes. Hi, thanks so much for your talk. I had a quick question. Um, I'd like to hear more on your opinions or different strategies people have talked about in regards to labeling. I think they could be really useful tools, but there are already so many labels that end up on our food and some of the ones like even the organic label, it's been around forever, are really misinterpreted. So um, kind of curious to hear more on your insight on how labels can be used more strategically or maybe how labeling practices are different between the U.S. and other countries or regions. Thanks. Sure. Um, at least as far as the, the strategic side, I mean, this, I think, is a fascinating area. Um, in Singapore, we actually uh, ran an experiment uh, along with uh, Shirley Ho, who is now the editor of Environmental Communication, uh, the journal. Um, and her and I developed our own uh, experiment to look at different forms of uh, nanotechnology uh, labeling for food products. And we put we took up about a quarter of the front of a package um, with a few different experimental manipulations where one was like a happy sunshine, right? This product has nano in it. One was kind of neutral and one was like kind of dark looking, right? Uh, and we ran the whole experiment. And when we did our manipulation checks, people didn't register even seeing it, right? Uh, and so we went, okay, right? So we had a, a null finding here where even though, like if you looked at all three of them, like it's a stark contrast. Um, and so the information processing here is something that we really, uh, really note to be a, a big issue. Um, you know, a chapter that I wrote years ago looked at uh, what, what we call, at least in, in this kind of area of product marketing, as an asymmetry principle, different from what Jason was discussing earlier. Uh, but this is noting that when public makes sense out of something like a consumer product, they oftentimes are doing so with uh, a less, uh, less access to information in general. Um, and so it's asymmetric in this information uh, access. So the developer inscribes on the package what it's going to look like, how it's going to look next to other packages. Um, and then we do get to this uh, issue of voluntary versus mandatory labeling, right? The voluntary labeling is obviously going to push people towards the motivation of the seller um, every single time. And so uh, the voluntary label is designed uh, to uh, get people to feel uh, affinity for that product, which is why it's an anti-GMO voluntary label, right? Um, and they purposefully choose the cute butterfly and things. 
um, in order to provide that heuristic of positivity. Um, and so that I think is something that's completely uh, distinct and obviously serves a very persuasive mechanism um, versus the mandatory label that is trying to enact that idea of transparency, right? And so the mandatory label is one where we are trying to look at this through that third party arbitership where uh, there is this guise of, we want you to know and have information access, but um, we are also potentially inscribing that there may be some risk here. And so that I think is the one that becomes really contentious um, between groups where if the mandatory label does uh, potentially overstep its bounds, uh, it can be the fear-inducing heuristic and cause people to look at that as that cautionary do not buy a label. And so that is something. Um, there have been different forms of labeling on different kinds of products, whether it's GMO, nano, um, and we'll see where GEF goes um, around the country. Um, and if you want, I'd be happy to share with you some resources um, so feel free to shoot me an email, see what I can dig up for you that looks at kind of comparisons across how they've been portrayed and what kind of effect that's had uh, on, on public acceptance in different regions. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Cummings. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. We are at the end of our program here. So I'm going to send you there are some other comments um, in our chat and I'll send that to you. And I want to thank everyone for coming out this Tuesday uh, for Dr. Chris Cummings um, talk about gene edited food, trust and media. Cheers, everybody. Thank you.